0: I guess now almost 30 years ago I was having lunch with a colleague and we were just talking about power and and why it is that some people seem to to have more influence in the world than others and how that comes about and then we started you know looking into the literature and what had been studied about that and and you know at that time I was mainly doing game theory and the study of strategic interactions and so that sort of naturally led to trying to understand how people form connections and how those connections matter in their lives, and, and then suddenly I, I just found it fascinating and, and started to study it in detail.
1: Welcome to Science for the People, I'm Rochelle Saunders. Matthew Jackson is the William D. Eberly Professor of Economics at Stanford University and an external faculty member of the Santa Fe Institute and a senior fellow of CIFAR. His research interests include game theory, microeconomic theory, and the study of social and economic networks. He's here to talk about his most recent book, The Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors. So why write this book? What was the goal for this one? I,
0: I think the the goal is that there's a lot of ways in which our networks, the acquaintances, and, and people we interact with on a day-to-day basis, the way that they shape our lives and shape our opportunities and and what we know and how we know it. And there's a lot of science now that I think is available. And, and these are things that that are easy to understand. And so the idea was really to communicate those to, to people and to help them understand not only how their lives work, but, but how we can improve policies uh, to, to help the world.
1: Study of human networks is such a cross-disciplinary topic. I mean, you point out in the book that it covers, or uh, it's interested, um, people are interested in it, ranging from sociology, uh, economics, mathematics, physics, uh, anthropology, computer science. It's it's quite a, a field of interest in a lot of different disciplines.
0: Yes, exactly. It's it's one that that pretty much cuts across disciplines, and it, it's it actually, you know, as a scientist studying it, you realize how siloed academia can become, and, and people are all in their own departments and studying their own topics, and yet this is one that if you could redefine all the the fields, there'd be a, its own field. It, it really, it, it touches all sorts of, of uh, sciences, I guess, from different angles.
1: So how how old or maybe new is the thinking that you talked about in this book about human networks and and that the impacts and effects i mean have we long been thinking about from an academic perspective human networks is it kind of established thinking and established thought or is some of this stuff quite a bit newer
0: um, both uh, you know you can find plato talking about uh, birds of a feather flocking together not in those terms but but you know the the tendency of people to associate with other people who are like them and and how that influences people's Decisions. So it, it you know, it, it's been around for millennia. Uh, at the same time, I think now there's two things happening. One is that people's lives are being affected by new technologies and the way we communicate uh, and, and the social platforms that, that allow us to connect to other people at, at greater distances has, has made it more obvious to people how, how networked they are. And that's also opened a, a sea of data to, to people to study in terms of how we interact and, and when we interact and, and how that shapes what news we're hearing and when we're hearing it and, and, uh, how we're, how we're forming our behavior our behaviors and beliefs. And so I think it's, it's a combination of very new data availability and, and techniques for analyzing that. And then some old ideas and, and, you know, it hasn't escaped people that, that, that they're influenced by people around them. I think now it's just easier to study and and the techniques and data availability have, have really hit a peak.
1: I was going to say um, for certain types of academics, I imagine a world of social media that really surfaces network connections in a way that we couldn't, that we didn't sort of see surfaced previously it must be kind of an absolute gift.
0: It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating time. and And at the same time, you know the algorithms that are associated with a lot of the the technology that's out there is changing the way that people are interacting and and so there's there's both the availability of data and also the the sort of interesting byproduct that it's changing the way people are are interacting and and that that combination is makes it really fascinating.
1: I'm assuming that um some social media systems that are inherently public and also tend to be um, inherently you know, people kind of archive every tweet they've made forever, and they're all still publicly available in a lot of cases, that it must be, I don't know about easy, but there's definitely the possibility of being able to track ideas or thoughts through a network, both from kind of how wide ranging they went, but also how they dispersed in the first place in a way that I, I'm assuming would have been really hard with those kinds of population sizes before.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, And, and actually you learn interesting things. So uh, um, I, I, there's a a study which looked at, at um, just chain email chains at one point where, you know, this is sort of old chain mail where you forward something to your friends and so forth and, and sort of looked at the paths that those take. And, you know, there's this idea that, that networks have a small world feature to them, which means that, you know, if you actually look around the world uh, um, just in a few hops, you could reach pretty much anyone that, 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 Uh, you know you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows the president or you know somebody who knows somebody who knows a random person in in china and you know that 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 somehow you can actually reach quite easily to to people who are far away but then when you look at the paths that a lot of messages take they don't take short paths they take really really long paths so they they can take they can meander and and, uh, you know, actually go hundreds or even thousands of of people long uh, before they reach you. And, and that means that, that there's a lot of chance for them to be distorted or, or changed along the way. So there's some really interesting features that you can begin to see just by looking at the way that we communicate.
1: So the subtitle of this book is How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors. That is probably, for some people, a little bit provocative of a subtitle for something about networks. So why did you want to focus in on that particular aspect of a human network?
0: Um, you know, actually, there's there's a different subtitle. There's a, a UK version of the book that has a different subtitle, which is How We're Connected and Why It Matters.
1: Oh, interesting. Um,
0: Yes, and and you know, so the, there are different choices by different publishers in terms of of how to you know um, uh, what what the proper subtitle would be, um, and I think you know the, they're both somewhat appropriate for the book in terms of you know, the book gives an idea of of how these connections influence uh, what we're aware of and and how that that affects decision making and uh, all sorts of behaviors. Um, you know, I think it, 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 it the, the book is a little bit, it's, it's not a one theme book, which actually makes it a little more complicated to, um, to communicate than, than something that just has, you know, a simple thing like a tipping point kind of book or, you know, something where there's a, a, a central message that, that you can sort of pound home, um, that this, you know, explores um, several different facets of networks and how they matter and and how they matter differently and things like uh, a flu contagion from a financial contagion and how people trade and how trade is changing the world and so there's lots of different topics and and so it's hard to give a one sentence summary of of exactly what it's all about
1: so let's uh let's dive in and talk about some of the the meat that's in this book so i want to talk first about the idea of networks of individual humans. And I think probably one of the best places to start is not far off where you start in the book, which is talking about the friendship paradox. So can you walk us through what this is and how it works?
0: Sure. So the friendship paradox is, is a really simple fact. And it sounds paradoxical at first, but then it's quite obvious. It's, you know, most paradoxes are somehow mathematically trivial. But the idea is that your friends are more popular than you are and And we all experience this. So when when we look around, uh, you know we, we feel somehow that our friends are are communicating with more people and and are 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 seen by more people and are more central in some ways than we are. And that paradox is is sort of easy to understand because if you th- look around and you think, okay, here's somebody with um, two hundred friends and here's somebody with ten friends, the person with two hundred friends is going to be looked at by many, many more people. So, so they're going to be counted as a friend by more people than the person with ten friends, and so the people that are the most popular and the most central are are appearing in many friendships, and the people who are least popular and least central are are not appearing as as friends to many people, and so that that means there's a bias in terms of what our our collection of friends look like. They're biased towards being the people who are are friends with more people, and that that paradox is. is know is exacerbated when you look at, at things like social media so on twitter you know you can have people who have millions of followers and they're being followed by people who have tens of followers so you know that this sort of really goes, goes to extremes once you get on platforms and and it matters if if we're looking to our friends to to think about what kinds of behaviors we should adopt because those people aren't random selections from the population if if we're trying to think about what's normal um, they're not normal people. They're they're more much more central people, and and those people tend to act differently.
1: This is what I found really interesting, because I had heard of this paradox before, and I, I kind of knew the idea behind it and and why it you know, why it made sense the sort of logic behind it. Um but what I hadn't really thought through was that sort of the, some of the implications from this that you walk through in the book which one of which is that popular people tend to be overrepresented and they can spread their ideas quite a bit faster so they have a large reach and that influences social norms and i it also kind of distorts it as well because we we take something as being more popular than it actually is just because a few popular people tend to promote it
0: yes exactly and and you know one when- example i walk through in a book is of you know teenage behaviors and and teens are keenly aware of what their friends are doing and and take that as a signal of how they should behave and you know people who are if you i think several studies have looked at when teens first try drugs and alcohol and um, smoking and uh, some statistics are um you know basically if if you uh, each additional friend um, leads to a 6% increased chance that, that um, someone has tried alcohol in middle school, a 5% chance, increased chance that they've smoked. Uh, so these people, you know, they're, they're more connected, and that means that they're more social, and they're interacting with more people, and they try, tend to do social things earlier and, and with greater, and, and greater amounts. And then... People are looking around at their friends, and they see their friends are smoking or, or or drinking in in middle school, and they take that to be normal behavior, and and so then that feeds back and can lead to a norm where where people have a distorted idea of how much behavior is going on in a population, and they think it's it's normal behavior when it's actually rarer than than they think.
1: It's rare from the standpoint of raw numbers of people participating at first, but it's just so overrepresented in the visuals. It's, it's a really, I found difficult thing to hold in my mind, but some of the diagrams in the book really made it. Much clearer to understand. They were really helpful for me to understand this kind of tension between these two ideas of something being not that common in terms of raw number of people exhibiting a behavior, but become overwhelmingly common when you look at the networks of those individuals.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's something that, you know, we can be aware of. It's just hard to, you know, we're, we're I think humans are innate counters. We just sort of look around ourselves and we, we can, you know, our brains roughly keep track of how often something's going on or how frequently we see something. Does this look like the normal behavior? And and that gives us an impression, but we don't necessarily think, oh, but but what I'm seeing isn't actually what the full population's doing. It's what my friends are doing and my friends aren't random people from the population. That's very difficult for us to grasp, right? We We usually think of our friends as sort of normal, typical people. And and they're not. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting, you know, yeah. It's 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 a it's a f- important thing to understand.
1: Early on in the book, you spend a little bit of time talking about the Google PageRank algorithm and its creation to, I think, help people understand some of the concepts in human networks. So, why did you decide to focus on that example as a as a good way to illustrate um, one of the ideas within a human network?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was one of the first really important applications of the idea that that when you want to find something really central, it's not just how many friends you have, but which friends you have. And in terms of Google PageRank, the way that worked was, you know, I don't know how many people remember back to the early days of the internet, but the early days of the internet, companies were struggling to figure out how do we deal with these millions of pages that are starting to pop up and, you know, when you type in a keyword, you want to find one of these pages. Uh, which ones do we show you? That was a, a tricky thing at first. And and Google, the um, page rank was a, a very clever algorithm. It said, look, we don't want to just look for pages that have lots of connections. We want the pages that are being pointed to, being connected to by other important pages. Right. So, so you want to find the ones that, that other important pages are paying attention to. And, and that is a very different concept than just looking at the ones that have lots of, of links. Um, and, and ones with lots of links were also easy to create. You could create a page and then create lots of fake pages that would point to it and so forth. And, and so there was a lot of noise in the internet and, and this algorithm really cut through things. Um, it was a very clever algorithm and, and that kind of, centrality it's it's not you know it's this old adage it's not what what you know but who you know it's it's not how many people you know but but how connected they are that's important in terms of your reach right Somebody can have thousands of friends and somebody else just has a couple but if those couple of friends are are really well connected that's that can be really important
1: yeah this idea of kind of indirect reach
0: exactly exactly
1: it's- quite interesting. I just happened to be reading your book alongside also reading um, a book called Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Umojan-Noble. And um, that book is – looking at how technology like Google's page rank is a distortion of reality that negatively impacts unprivileged groups due to an overrepresentation of certain groups' ideas. And I found reading the two books in tandem quite interesting because her book dealt with a lot of the kind of outcomes of some of this and some of the um, ways in which privilege and lack of privilege play out online, while your book talks about some of the underlying realities of how networks – not are manipulated, but how networks don't always spread information in a way that you might think they do and how popular things can be distorted. You can create e- echoes in these kind of feedbacks or double counting that distort some of the, I'm using air quotes here, reality of, of what's actually happening in the network. And I, I felt like they were really interesting to read together as kind of two sides of the same coin.
0: Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And and you know, as you're pointing out, uh, the there's, there's all kinds of distortions that that come in. You know, beyond the friendship paradox, the you know, there are feedback effects in networks. And and one thing that happens, you know, as you're sort of pointing out, there, um, you could call it privilege, or there's a a rich get richer effect. So, for instance, you know, once a page starts getting found a lot via an algorithm say, you know, Google's page rank or whatever uh, search engine you have, then it becomes easier to find, then more people go to that source and start connecting to that source. And then it becomes even easier to find. And then the one that never gets found, gets harder to find. And, and so that, you know, you get these kinds of feedback effects in networks where, uh, it, it plays out socially too. You know, people who have more friends, it's easier to make more friends at that point. Or if you have more business connections, then those people can help you get new connections and new business, and and those people help you, and, and you, you know, it snowballs. So there's a sort of multiplicative effect of the way that networks work, which can be very uh, unequalizing in in a sense um, that you know that can really exacerbate inequality.
1: So was this one, then remind me, this one was the eigenvector centrality?
0: Yes, yeah. So the the notion of, you know, um, I'm connected to somebody who's well-connected, and I I sort of measure how connected I am by how well-connected my friends are. Well, that becomes a a self-referential notion, because then uh, those people, I have to define how well-connected they are. And that goes to their friends and so forth and so you end up with a mathematically you end up with a system of equations and a system of unknowns but it's it, it's one of the best studied um, areas of mathematics and and leads to this notion called an eigenvector um, for measuring how central different nodes are so it's it's actually very beautiful math and 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 conceptually quite simple um, and and it's it's very powerful in a network sense
1: so there's a, another type of centrality that I want to talk about. There's a few, but one in particular that I thought was quite interesting was, I'm pretty sure it was betweenness centrality, and you illustrated this quite well with the Medici family?
0: Yes, yeah, precisely. So that's a different notion. You know, we've talked about sort of two. like One is just how many friends you have. Another is how powerful your friends are and, and how well-connected they are. And this third one is is a notion that has been around in sociology for I guess about four or five decades and and is one that that sort of looks at how good a connector you are between different groups. So you might think of of people who other otherwise couldn't talk to each other but need to go through you or different groups. you know if you reach out and and connect to a, a group that's very different from the people you're normally interacting with, you become a bridge between those those groups and and that kind of centrality is is one that you know has different aspects in different contexts um but can be quite quite important and as you're pointing out it it it, it sort of unlocks the the rise of the medici in in uh, florence in the 15th century so it, it sort of explains their position and how they rose to power even though they weren't the the most wealthy or the best politically they were really a, a good connector of other families who didn't talk to each other and, and that gave him a lot of power.
1: So I also want to talk about this idea of, and I swear I'm going to mispronounce this the first time, but I got a 50-50 chance, homophily?
0: Uh, that's correct. Yeah, homophily. Oh, yes.
1: win. Okay, yes. so it is homophily. Can yes. you uh, give us a definition of what homophily is and talk about it a little bit, as in how yeah. it applies to networks?
0: Yeah, so so homophily is something that we're, uh, is an overwhelming tendency of humans to interact with people who are similar to themselves. And, you know, that happens along, um, ethnic lines, age lines, religion, uh, income, gender, uh, pretty much any kind of dimension you can think of that describes a person. They tend to interact with other people who are similar to themselves. And it happens for all kinds of reasons. You know, just the fact that you know, school kids go to school with other kids who are, um, similar in terms of their age and, and often, uh, geographically uh, there's going to be segregation by income or ethnicity. And so they might be you know, tending to see people who are similar to themselves. It happens professionally because we work with people who have the same skills that we do and, and tend to be working in the same areas. And, and it, it means that, that most of the time we're interacting and talking to people who are, are have very similar backgrounds and, and similar experiences and, Um, You know that can be good and bad. It it has its its features that that makes communication really easy and you know sort of great to be interacting with people like that. But it also segments our networks quite a bit and and you know can make for the sort of echo chamber kinds of of features into in the networks that we are are embedded.
1: I was fascinated by one of the examples you called out by um, Thomas Schelling, um, where small bias in ethnic preferences of the neighborhood that someone lives in can be uh, quite a large and surprisingly powerful force for neighborhood segregation.
0: right, right. It's, it's' sort of interesting because it's a it's it's one of the these really simple ideas. Uh, and basically he's you know his idea was let's suppose that people, don't have a strong preference to be around their own type, but they just don't want to be too small a minority in a given area. Uh, so if they become too small a minority, then they move. And, you know, you think, okay, well, and, uh, you know, if one or two people are, are sort of misplaced, then they move. That's not a big deal. But what happens is it's it's sort of a cascading model, and, and it's a fascinating idea that, you know, once somebody moves, that actually changes the composition of the neighborhoods for other people, and and can you know they they lose a neighbor that might have been similar to them, or or now they're in a new neighborhood, they they change, destabilize it for somebody else. Um, so so the it has a sort of a chain reaction kind of effect, and and um, even small preferences can then end up cascading and and end up in very very segregated um, societies and uh, it's it's yeah it's a fascinating uh, explanation for some of the geographic differences that you see in in terms of how people locate
1: it's interesting because in this example, I can see the tension again of this idea, which is you can see how this kind of movement of people might end up having some positive impacts for the smaller groups within their communities and individual neighborhoods. They have comfort uh, in that space. There are people there that, that sort of look like them and feel like them that they're comfortable with. But also once you kind of zoom out and look at a larger group, like a, at a society level or a country level, you end up with these kind of much more segregated clusters, which sounds like we're able to correlate at the moment anyway, to how well an overall society is is functioning. So it's it's this tension, again, of something that seems to work better for smaller groups in some ways can expose real problems once you zoom out and look at larger groups.
0: Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, as you're pointing out that there's you know, a lot of good reasons for it in terms of, you know, you, you feel comfortable being around people that are similar to, to yourself and it, it allows for better communication. And, and to some extent, you know, I don't know if you think about people that are new parents, it's, it's great to be around other new parents that are experiencing the same things or have experienced the same thing you're going through and you can and ask it gives for you advice like a social and,
1: support structure.
0: Exactly. And, and, and these are people who really understand what you're going through and can help you out in ways that other people can't. And so, you know, it, it, on the one hand, it's, it's very supportive. On the other hand, then it becomes very isolating because that, that sort of segments, um, society into different groups. And, uh, you know, some of the things I go through in the book are, are, for instance, looking inside a, a U.S. high school where, you know it uh, on the surface of the high school, it looks quite balanced in terms of ethnicities. and you say, well, this looks like a really well integrated high school, but then when you look in, at the friendships internally, they segment almost completely along uh, along ethnic lines. and And that means that you know it the high school operates very differently than um, than you might expect it to. And it could be that that different groups have very different norms and aren't communicating to each other at all. Uh, and have different aspirations and different information that they're getting and and behaving very differently, even though they're in close proximity.
1: You also talk in the book how uh, homophily can create kind of what you call poverty traps, where a group of people, because they stay with a like group of people and are drawn to people in situations and from backgrounds like themselves, have a tendency to sort of get trapped in these kind of immobility spaces where they can't get out of those things. Um, there was an example in the book that you talked about where a young woman was looking to try and figure out how to apply for college and navigating that process in her, from her particular background. She had no real understanding of how to even begin navigating that process. And that was just a combination of her background and where she had grown up and the people that surrounded her also not really knowing how to navigate that. She didn't kind of have a community guide or a network guide to help her understand what to do or where to go or how to access, you know, scholarships and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and it's something that we sort of almost take for granted that that nowadays people have access to whatever information they want, especially with the internet. We sort of figure, well, they, but if you think about a teenager who's growing up in an area where her her parents didn't go to college and nobody around her is going to college and and then you you know, think about well if if the friends aren't studying for the SATs you know what what's the you don't even know that they're upcoming and maybe someone at school tells you you should be studying for them but you're not even sure how to study for them or that studying makes a difference or you know there's all of this stuff that that is a, is sort of basic knowledge that comes from your community and the people around you and there's also you know so that's sort of one level in terms of just the education level and then on another level there's the fact that job information flows through networks and and that most of the jobs we get um come from referrals and so if you're in a in an area where people aren't well employed and and you're not connected to people who work in the industry you want to work in it's very difficult to get a job and and that means that that you know certain groups end up being privileged just because they're all connected to people who are well employed and other people are are not connected at all to people who are well-employed.
1: There was a a fascinating section of the book where you talked about some, um, I don't know if experiments is the right word, but research that was done um, after the military drafts to understand how the act of sort of combining some random people and creating a network uh, because of their military background from the draft, then later impacted those people's ability to, I think it was to find work. It was quite a fascinating yes. yeah, experiment.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah that, that, that was a study by Ron Leshever, who is an economic historian. And it, yeah, as you're pointing out, it's sort of an amazing uh, study. So it, it, he he was looking at the draft in the First World War, um, with, where you know the U.S. Army, I think in 1917, had something like 300,000 people in it. And by 1918, it went to 4 million. So there was this dramatic increase in the size of the army. And, and that was one of the largest drafts I think is, was the largest draft in U S history in terms of a short period of time. And, and they took people, you know, just randomly by their draft number and put them into hundred person companies. And then these people, you know, were were literally put in the trenches together for, for a couple of years. And, and that, that, process made really close friendships and the then what he does is you know because it's sort of difficult so suppose i I tell you look uh you know networks really matter in employment and you know i can show you that by by showing you that that people who are really well employed are friends with each other and people who are unemployed are friends with each other and you say well no that that doesn't show me anything because it could just be that unemployed people like to be friends with other unemployed people and employed people like to be friends with other employed people. So his study was really important because it it, it was really a, a situation where you could say these these friendships were formed you know by this random draft not because people you know were were picking these other people to be friends. And then he sort of follows the the outcome of these companies over over the decades after the first world war using the census and and trying to see how well employed they were and you know finds um, I think roughly if you look at somebody's company, look at a soldier and look at look at his company and a 10 percent increase in, in the employment in his company would lead to a 4 percent increase in hit the chance that he was employed. So roughly a 40 uh, you percent know, spillover, that, that's a, a fairly sizable effect, right, 40 percent just from, from the you know, people you were, were drafted with. Um, So it it was one that really could show how important it was how well-employed your friends are in terms of determining whether you're going to have a good outcome in your labor market.
1: It's one of these fantastic kind of clever bits of research looking at a, a time and place in the world where these kind of natural experiments happened without necessarily being Guided or being forced, because if, if we were to say, you know, let's run an experiment to prove this, there's just no way you could kind of engineer something. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by historians and people looking back to try and find or who, who just end up finding these kinds of little moments in time that act as really great natural tests of these ideas. And I think this is just such a perfect example of one of these yeah. situations.
0: You're right. It's it's a really a beautiful example, and it, it's, it, and you know, it it's also when you when you start thinking about these things, sometimes you have a really clever idea, but then it's hard to find a scale where you get enough data and you can actually have a powerful enough impact. So this one was just perfect in the sense that, you know, you really had. R- millions of people. You have census data for years afterwards. You can really see that these people were put together and and you know forming close friendships. Yeah, it was. It, it's really a beautiful example of of that type of uh, of research and and approach. It's a powerful method when it works right.
1: So, looking at this information, knowing that homophily has an impact in our networks, and knowing sometimes that that impact can be negative, can create these kinds of poverty traps, our, our urge to stick with people like us can actually mean that we stay in an underprivileged situations. I mean, what do we do with this knowledge from a, a kind of public policy or government or social program perspective? Is there a way that we can use this knowledge to try and make some of this better?
0: Yes. Um, you know, I think that there's sort of two levels that that you, we can do this at one is sort of a personal level, and and it's something that I've become increasingly aware of. You know, just as a as I've studied this over the years, it, you know, one thing we can do is personally put yourself in sort of uncomfortable situations where you go out and you reach out to, you know, for instance, for me as an economist. Uh, sometimes it's a little strange to go to a conference where everybody is speaking a slightly different language and, you know, uh, has different backgrounds and are studying different things. But as you pointed out at the beginning, network science goes across different areas. And so it's sort of necessary to, to reach out across the aisle and and hop into different circles of, of people that that have different backgrounds. And so on a personal level, we can do that On, on a, Know policy level, it's, it's much more challenging. And I I give you one example where I think, you know, this, this can be done well. Um, so as we talked about in terms of high schools, if you have a fairly large high school, say that's, that's on paper ethnically well integrated. So, you know, you've got a a mix of different backgrounds and races and, and, um, you, you think it's a fairly diverse environment. Well, if it's a large high school, then it can just fragment into small, small cliques of different groups that that really don't interact with each other but if it's a very small group so there's sort of a a critical mass phenomenon where if you get small enough groups then you know i i can't just be friends with my own type because there aren't enough of my own type around and i'm sort of forced to have friendships that that are with people who are, are different from me and one way to sort of you know, um, work, this is instead of having a a large high school where you, everybody just sort of mixes together, you can segment it into lots of small groups where those small groups are, are almost like a high school within a high school, right? So, you know, have a group of 40 or 50 people or even smaller, say 30. And, and those people take classes together and, and, you know, operate as a group, and and you know have a bunch of those groups and if they're sort of you know randomly chosen from the population then people are going to have much more random friendships and and have more diverse uh friendships than they would otherwise so you know just the way that that the the whole system works you can begin to to do that but social engineering is not an easy thing, and and you know uh, can have unintended consequences. So, so it's something that that it, you know has to be done carefully.
1: I was going to say, I think I think we're definitely learning the lesson that social engineering is something that we can take lightly yeah. these days. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's a it's a fascinating age that way.
1: I do also want to talk about uh, decision-making because this is something that flows through networks and um, it's incredibly important now all the time, really. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how decisions or opinions kind of can flow through a network and the impact those have?
0: Right. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we've already touched on a, a couple of aspects which which make a big difference, which is, you know, one is the, the friendship paradox. So, we're paying attention to really central people the other is that we have a lot of homophily so often we're 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 in our own groups and so if anything we're we're paying attention to people who are sort of important in our own group and 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 somewhat you know small echo chambers uh there's sort of two other things that are interesting about humans uh one is that you know we're we're able to be deceived and and you know that comes from this you know one thing that's special about humans that di- differentiates us from other species is that we're able to communicate abstract thoughts and and ideas so you know i can explain to you um, that i went on vacation to some place you've never been and i can describe it to you and vicariously you can almost experience that place and and you know picture it in your mind and think of what it's like and understand a little bit of it and and that ability to communicate in that particular way is is really what is is very unique to 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 our species and that also makes us susceptible to deceptions right so i can tell you something and you can believe it and it not be true and and so um you know you couple that together with the idea that we're getting information in a very limited form and then we're we're also prone to this sort of counting bias where you know, let's suppose that I, I hear from a bunch of my friends that, um, I don't know, you know, say uh, they've all heard that this new movie that's opening is is really great and, and we should all go see it. Um, you know, the more people tell me that, the, the more I tend to believe it. But it could be that they're all reading a single review, right? That, that, that there's just one piece of information that that's flowing through. And uh, that that makes it very difficult for us to... To process. Um, you know, we're seeing that now with, uh, with these pockets of, of measles, uh, vaccination issues and sort of one old study that, that went way back, which was turned out to be fraudulent and, and still echoes today in, in certain parts of the population. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating. Distortion that that makes it very difficult for people to learn in in a social environment,
1: yeah there's this uh, these sorts of distortions and and echoes and double countings of information, so uh, the idea of an echo where you put something in. Um, and it kind of bounces back at you in a way that maybe you're not quite aware of. And then you take that into account as, as someone else's opinion that reinforces an opinion you had. But sometimes that's just really an echo of, of the thing that you put out there to begin with, as well as the idea of double counting. It, it seems so kind of separately kind of academic and interesting when we think about it in terms of movies or restaurant choices. But when you look at it as applied to things like the anti-vax movement, it becomes a different kind of important to understand how it works.
0: Right, exactly. And, and you know, and I think the interesting thing about the, you know, vaccination thing is that, you know, people are really genuinely interested in doing the thing that's best for their children right it's 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 you know, a lot of people are really interested in that and and it's it's not a situation it's also a situation where there is a real truth and and we realize how difficult it can be when we're bombarded by information from different sources and we're not sure how to make sense of it and we're hearing a lot of things from people that we trust and and these kinds of things moving around and you know it uh Things can be moving around and, and coming at us that aren't true. Uh, and that's very difficult to sort out. It's, it, it, it means that we really have to be true detectives and, and spend an amor- enormous amount of time checking facts and, uh, you know, and checking sources and tracing information back and trying to figure out what came from where. And that's, that's a, a, a daunting task
1: we are incredibly influenced by where we come from in our network, both small kind of intimate networks, but also larger networks. Um, I thought quite a good illustration of this was um, when you talked about diplomatic immunity, and how the variety of law breaking behavior really depended on where the diplomat was from. I found that quite interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating study where they looked at parking tickets in New York and I, I, the numbers were staggering. <laughs> so I guess as a diplomat you can park pretty much wherever you are and if they give you a ticket then you just tear it up and you don't have to pay it. And depending on the country of origin, you know, countries that are very law abiding, uh, diplomats from those countries tended to you know to to park very legally and never to abuse this and uh, diplomats from countries that that are known for corruption Tended to park wherever they wanted to and <laughs> amass you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of tickets. It was just amazing uh, yeah, so so you know somehow uh, you know we we act the way that we think is normal and and what we think is normal is shaped by our 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 own communities, and often when we reach out and end up in new environments, it's very difficult for us to to adapt. Um, and figure out what's the normal thing to do in that society. And sometimes we're oblivious to it. Uh, and I guess in, in an increasingly global world, we'll see more and more of that.
1: There was uh, another really great story in the book that you talked about that I felt was a really great illustration of this idea of someone's outsized effect on a network, which was the the story of one man's impact on the wine industry, which I found fascinating. Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, this is Robert Parker. Uh, um, I, I, yeah, he's a, a wine critic who who is um, incredibly well known as a wine critic, probably the, the most famous of wine critics, and became known by picking a, a, a French Bordeaux vintage that nobody thought was going to be great. And, and he noticed it years before it was. And, you know, he has an incredible uh, ability to 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 distinguish wines and to remember them and to be able to tell you what wines from where. And, um, but then his prominence, you know, everybody started paying attention to him. And, and, uh, it's an e- example where some particular person's opinion started really swaying uh, the, the industry and as, as the one person's quoting you know uh, a high rating from him can can mean millions of dollars for uh for uh, uh you know a wine in terms of it, uh, it goes from being obscure to everybody wanting to buy it and uh it it can make or break a vintage and then his particular tastes they they, they even call it the parkerization of wines so you know winemakers started to try and make things that he would like <laughs> so it, it even you know started distorting the way that people thought about what what should be a good wine and how they should make it so it's it, it's a fascinating story where one central person can really have a huge influence on the way that industry works
1: yeah that was such a great example of a very outsized amount of influence on, on an entire industry which i it was just really interesting to read about that one yeah yeah Um, I also want to talk a little bit about financial networks because this, uh, being in the book, I found when I hit this chapter, I was like, Oh, I wonder why this is here. And, um, it was actually one of my favorite parts of the book, uh, because I, I hadn't really thought about financial networks this way and some of the subtleties involved in human behavior as it is applied to our financial system. So why did you want to include this particular chapter in the book? Uh, because it it's not separate, it doesn't feel out of place, but it, it sort of looks at things at a different angle than a lot of the rest of the book does.
0: Right. I think, you know, one, one thing about financial networks is it's, uh, you know, two things. One is, uh, a, a lot of people think that markets work perfectly, and and that there's sort of this invisible hand that that does great things, and and um, and to a large extent, markets can be miraculous, and competitive markets, you know, allocate resources in ways that are sort of almost magical. Uh, but but financial networks are somewhat special, and and understanding the network aspect of it. I think does two things one is it helps us understand finance a lot better and the other is that it sort of illustrates basic principles of networks in ways that that are, are is quite powerful and and one is this idea of externalities um that what somebody else is doing can have an impact uh, on on you so for instance you know just in terms of a friend if a, if I have a friend who goes and and learns a new computer Technique, a new machine learning technique, or something, and I'm doing some research. That actually benefits me. So even though the friend was doing it for for her own purpose or his own purpose, uh, that can help me if I end up, you know, needing help later on. Um, in financial networks, this plays out in the sense that, you know, if I'm dealing with Lehman Brothers and and having a big investment with a particular investment bank, and they've made a ba- a, a bunch of bad investments on the side um I, their bankruptcy can can cost me in in some cases um hundreds of millions of dollars and and put me in in close to insolvency or bankruptcy myself for for years to come and so you know understanding what the connections look like and and who's connected to who and what how they're invested ends up being really important and and so it it sort of really illustrates how powerful it is uh what what people a couple of of steps away from you are doing and and how you're connected to them and how you're exposed to them. And in the financial industry, it it played out um, quite graphically in, in 2007 and 2008.
1: So you talk about this, what you call kind of a sweet spot, but sweet implies it's a good thing and I want to call it something else, like a (laughs) salty spot or a spicy spot. I don't know what to call it, but (laughs) this this little – you know what I'm talking about? This little sort of middle zone on the way to – so as as financial systems get more connected, they start to diversify, which is generally speaking a good thing. But there is this kind of middle ground they have to pass through, like a – like a tank full of sharks. Right. Where they start to become more connected and become reliant upon each other, but not so diversified that they have enough kind of pegs on the stool they're leaning on to support them if one of the stool leg gets, gets cut off.
0: Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yes. And yeah.
1: that was a very interesting thing to understand for me because it, it, it's this unavoidable shark tank, I
0: feel Right, like. right, 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 right. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think the contrast is uh, when we think of something like the flu, you know, uh, you have to have, in order for contagion to spread, you need to have a network be connected enough to have contagion spread. And basically, that means that each person has to be bumping into at least one infected person. So, you know, but if you if you sort of increase that and say, okay, I'm now I'm bumping into hundreds of of connected people, then, you know, that even makes it worse. So the the more interactions you have when in in a simple disease contagion, the more the disease spreads and the worse it gets. And in financial networks, as you're pointing out, there's a sort of sweet spot where in, in order for something to spread, it has to be that each bank is sort of connected and exposed to other banks. But the the interesting thing about financial networks is if if i'm a bank you know imagine i'm i am i am going to make some loans well if i make a loan to one other partner then if they default that's a disaster for me because all my money is loaned out to them but if i make you know thousands of loans then um i'm well diversified because it's unlikely that all thousand of them are going to go you know bankrupt at the same time and the sort of sweet spot refers to the fact, well, if I make three, say three, four or five loans, that's enough for me to be really exposed to contagion, because now there's a likelihood that one of them will go bankrupt. Um, but I'm not so well diversified that I'm protected because I only have a few loans out. So it can be a big chunk of my portfolio. And that tends to be what financial networks look like. So when you look at the sort of large trades and the large um, exposures of banks, Um, they're not that well diversified. They they are doing a huge amount of business with a few, um, very, very large partners. And, and so you end up with a structure of, of a a network that has some features that can be very dangerous in terms of contagion. And, and that still goes on today. So, you know, Dodd-Frank didn't undo that and, and, uh, it's, it's something that still exists and is still a, a reality,
1: This really helps me to understand why the bailouts had to happen, because I think that's something I struggled to understand. Why are we bailing out these big, irresponsible financial players? We should just let them fall. But understanding and kind of seeing the diagrams and understanding how these networks play out and the the shark tank that they're in made me understand about oh i see why this yeah. this is potentially a domino and a cascade of dominoes that can cause a real problem um and and that was was a piece of that puzzle that i, I don't think i really understood before
0: Right, right, and I, I think it's easy to sort of underestimate how dangerous the situation was, and and how important it was. You know, so so they let Lehman Brothers fail, and in retrospect, that was a, a mistake. But they actually saved a bunch of players that could have been much more disastrous. So, AIG was a a, a large company that was doing a lot of insurance on on various um derivatives and. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were really central in the mortgage business, which was part of the business that was really um, underwater. And they were so well connected that if they had gone bankrupt, we we could have just it, it could have been a decimation. And it, there was no choice but to bail them out. And uh, uh, and once you see the network structure, you realize that, yeah, that, that it would have been absolutely disastrous to let them fail.
1: It, it somehow makes it less, it makes me less angry, not completely not angry, but less <laughs> angry to know that it wasn't necessarily entirely about bailing out one or two large companies. It was effectively about bailing out a network of things.
0: Right, right, and and I think the you know the the difficult part is that you know implicit in the world now is this idea that look these markets are so intertwined that we realize the governments are going to have to step in, and so we believe that they're all you know that there's bailouts waiting, and that that itself the the whole limited liability and the idea of bailouts then changes the incentives for banks to invest and and you know that it has its own distortions and and part of the reason that then you need some financial regulation is that these markets aren't just simple free markets where goods are just being allocated and if somebody goes bankrupt well that's their own business these are markets that have consequences that are much far beyond any particular single player and understanding that and understanding how distorted their incentives to invest can be means that you know we have to have information on what they're doing and, and have some idea of, of whether or not we're teetering near the edge or, uh, or or things are safe. And, and, you know, that's something I think central banks around the world are now really aware of keenly aware of. And, and in talking with central bankers, it's become clear that they're, they're thinking in networks, that that's their primary uh, mode of, of thinking these days, but it's very difficult for them to, have all the information they need to see the network and then actually to be able to do anything about it other than sort of react after the fact.
1: So this is probably not the best way to ask this question, but I'm just going to plow through because it's the only way I can think. Is there a way to like regulate ourselves out of this shark tank or is that still something that we're trying to figure out now that we know this piece of information and we are starting to really understand how, the dominoes are set up and which dominoes are precariously placed. Is there a way that we can put some rules in place to govern financial institutions or uh, provide guidelines around diversification? I guess I'm just looking for, is there a regulatory lever here somewhere that we can like, push in?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess, you know, there's there's offs and there's no simple answer to that question because uh, I think what the a network perspective gives us is we realize how interconnected and and dangerous and somewhat fragile these systems can be, which means we need to to do something. Uh, then the question is, well, what do you do? And and uh, you know, I know from talking to people and and you know, work at the Fed or. or um, uh, di- different central banks around the world that there's debates internally about you know how, how do you deal with this and what you know if you put in more capital structure and you put in restrictions on how the financial institutions can trade well you know that can avoid these catastrophic situations but then also it makes it harder for them to do business on a day-to-day you know uh, 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 yeah from day-to-day and and there's a trade-off there, and and it's not an easy trade-off to figure out. And I think one thing that's sort of unambiguous is that it would be better for regulatory authorities to have detailed information about what the network looks like. And so, even you know, a basic thing is that our accounting principles don't necessarily require you know people like banks to reveal who. Who are my trades with? So, you know, I have to indicate I have a certain amount of loans out and a certain amount of mortgages and certain derivatives and other kinds of securities. But I don't necessarily have to tell you who I'm trading with. And without that information, it's very difficult to piece the network together and to know, oh, look, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of banks that are all close to insolvency and they're all trading with each other. And right, if one there's of them goes, they're all there. Gonna go. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so without that information, it's, it's really, you know, if we're doing individual stress tests one by one, that's very different than saying, look, uh, not only is this one, uh, not in great shape, but it's connected to three others that are in bad shape at the same time. Um, that's kind of, you know, that simple information would be very valuable to have. And, and so just improving that kind of information uh, already. Especially not just for banks, but for the what's known as the shadow banking. You know, there's lots of money that goes through insurance companies and pension funds and hedge funds and all sorts of organizations that aren't regulated directly. Knowing what's going on in the financial network would just be a starting point, and and sort of we're we're still operating a little bit in the dark. Um, So it's it's you know it's a fascinating area. Um,
1: Speaking of the idea of like shadow banking or the kind of shadow. In financial industry, is there any research into how things like money laundering or tax evasion impacts these kinds of financial networks?
0: Um, yeah, uh, those kind of networks are difficult to study. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there have been a you know certain studies of illicit networks, um, often after the fact. So you know, after some uh, you know, there's some studies of uh, parts of Enron and. Some of the fraudulent investments that we're making after afterwards, looking at emails and so forth, but but actually, and you know, there there is um, you can think of these days a lot of cybersecurity and and uh, international uh, relations. People look into networks as best they can to try and see illicit activity. Uh, it's not something that's. That's extremely well understood, and but there are techniques um, that are there to try and identify anomalous things, you know things that that normally shouldn't pop up in a network and somehow seem to be there. So you know the fact that networks exhibit very strong patterns means you can see when when things look a little strange. So there are techniques for identifying um, behavior.
1: Is there some understanding or some attempt to understand the influence of those behaviors once we can see them? Obviously, this is kind of black hat activity. So a lot of it is just invisible to people until I guess someone's actually caught doing them and perhaps the faucet is turned off.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's ways to to, to look for, um, you know, Uh, certain kinds of behaviors that could be fraudulent. And, uh, I I, I think it's, it's not easy, but, you know, for instance, as you can imagine, there's, there's people who spend time trying to identify, um, you know, communication between terrorists or, or, activities where somebody's trying to influence or, or plant, uh, you know, seed some kind of, false information so that kind of detection is going on and and it's very tricky it's 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 not easy and and we're sort of i think at the infancy of of really understanding that but i think you know more and more groups not only governments but but businesses themselves are especially social media platforms and so forth are are interested in trying to understand you know who's who's using it their their product the normal way and who's actually trying to do something disruptive with it
1: I definitely feel like we're at a point in particular with social networking where more people are starting to understand that you can maliciously attempt to manipulate a network at scale in a way that I'm not sure anyone really kind of thought was possible that now is very possible. And also, potentially, maybe we didn't think anyone would actually do it, but people are actually doing it.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah I mean and this notion of fake news and so forth is is interesting because you know for for millennia there's been propaganda and and attempts to you know to to mislead people and populations so that that's nothing new I think part of what's new is the way that it can be done uh in very subtly in in terms of social networks by planting things that then get re retold and and reshared and you know f- fascinating things like the the that false stories fa- travel faster and and are retweeted more than than true ones you know they're, they're sort of interesting tidbits and um uh, you know part of that's the the fact that we you know humans react to things that are provocative and interesting and and unexpected and and those are things that we tend to you know to to pass on um it's very difficult i think when you when you think about the this problem from a, a a platform's perspective, imagine that I'm some platform and I'm trying to to detect you know information that's malicious or, or false and and planted, deliberately deceptive, and then other stuff that's that's okay. Uh, it's actually very difficult for an algorithm to tell the difference between um, humor and uh, deliberate lies, right? So if if, if you can imagine something. I don't know if people know the onion, but, you know, there, it could be satire, you know, something that's a sort of a, a funny false story um, that can can be flagged as a false story just as easily as, as some deliberately planted false news. So if you're doing this algorithmically, it's not easy to sort of, you know, t- tell whether somebody's you know, sending something on because they think it's so silly or because they believe it and, and they're being influenced by it. Uh, that, that That's a really tricky problem.
1: I know one of my biggest takeaways from reading your book in particular of, of stepping through, um, the sort of diagrams in the book kind of step by step is a, a better understanding of how the idea of contagion, so something that's passing through a network, whether good or bad, and I use contagion kind of not necessarily with any connotations of a good contagion or a bad contagion but just something that passes through a network can leave a network fundamentally changed in a in a irreversible way and so there's not really a way to back out of these you can't kind of run run the test and then back it out again or roll back to a previous version yeah. it, uh, it leaves an outsized and lasting impact because as it moves through something it distorts it it changes it moves it 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 Changes the configuration of it, in, in often really profound ways.
0: Right, right, right. And I, I think you know one thing that's uh, you know mathematically networks are quite powerful because you know when you start thinking about things spreading outwards, they spread multiplicatively, right? So I, I reach two people, they each reach two more people, and you know if you start doubling things and doubling and doubling, you reach large numbers really quickly and And so you know, these effects can be quite quick and and quite large depending on on uh, how well they spread. So virality is 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 really a, a fascinating it, it could be great. I mean could you know it means good news can spread, but it also means other kinds of things can spread.
1: Um, I know I know one of the two sets of diagrams, the kind of comparative ones that'll'll that'll probably stick with me um, more than some of the other ones is the comparison of the um, voting that happened, I think it was in the Senate or in the Congress? The Senate, Um, yes. Yeah, the Senate a couple of decades ago versus more recently, and to see really visually in that network the polarization of politics in the U.S., and to see it visually represented like that, I I, I think we all know and feel that that polarization has been happening and is now worse than it has been in a very, very long time, if ever. But to actually kind of see it torn apart like that over the course yeah. of a couple of decades, um, that visual really left an impact.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And it, it sort of shows how how um, segmented our politics are these days and how polarized they are. And, and it, it's, you know, networks are amazing in that way in terms of the ability to visualize something and see how things are moving and how they're changing. The, the, the graphics are are really important and can show us things that we, we wouldn't quite have a, a full perspective on otherwise. And that one's I, I agree it's 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 really sort of a shocking one in terms of, you know, is there really polarization? Well, certainly if you look at Senate voting, they're they're voting very differently in, in terms of agreeing with each other than they used to, it's it's much more split along party lines and 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 uh, l- more fragmented than ever before. Well, than it has been in in some decades. Um, so it's it's really uh, uh, yeah, quite illustrative of of this general feeling that we have that that things have become uh, more polarized.
1: Matthew, it was a really fascinating read, and thank you so much for joining me today. Really interesting book, and I highly recommend people go check it out, if only to see the diagrams, which we cannot adequately explain in an audio-only format. Go look at the book, people.
0: Well, thanks so much, Rochelle. This has been really wonderful.
1: If you want to learn more about Matthew Jackson, his research, his writing, or the book, The Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors, we've got links for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which, as per usual, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders.